Well, I am, um, I am humbled to be here and grateful. I've not seen Chris in person for eight years. I think we Skyped once or twice, maybe when I first planted, came to plant New Covenant back in 2009. Uh, Jeff Smith was in easily when I was going to seminary and before that, and I would sometimes shoot down there and get to hear him preach. Very thankful for his ministry. My sister and brother-in-law also went to Coconut Creek for a short time when they were in South Florida, and uh, Matt Foreman and I have gotten to know each other through uh, social media, which is just a great way to connect with um, other like-minded brothers. And then I'll never forget, Chris for years said, you've got to meet Nick Kennecott, you've got to meet Nick Kennecott, you've got to meet Nick Kennecott, you guys are going to get along great. And he was right, we finally got together, it was probably like three years into the work, and we do try to stay in touch. And I wish we were a little bit closer. I am in the southernmost suburb of Savannah, so the opposite direction from Rinkin, almost the exact same sort of demographic, except we're a little bit more waterfront and coastal. But um, love getting together with him. I love his ministry, and I'm thankful for this gathering. And again, I'm humbled to be here and to get to open God's word for us this morning. I want to read to us out of... Um, Mark chapter 9, if you have a copy of scripture, go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 33, and we're going to read down to verse 41 as we look at God's word together this morning. Mark nine thirty-three to 41, and um, I'd like to pray for us before we do look at God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken such a clear word in the scriptures to us. We thank you that you renew our minds and our wills and our hearts by your word. We thank you that you show us the glory of your son in the scriptures. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rebuke us and correct us and instruct us that we might walk in paths of righteousness for your namesake. We pray, our God, that you would accomplish your purposes in us this morning and in this group and For the good of your church, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to sing your praises. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that from that place you would send your blessing, that you would command blessing for us this morning, and that you would make us attentive to the reading and preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking again at Mark 9, beginning in verse 33, and well-known account. Uh, Mark writing now as the disciples and Jesus are progressing on through Jesus's earthly ministry and Mark notes they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the way but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest and he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them if anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against me, uh, against us, is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. 
Well, one of the things that stands out to us as we look at the gospel records and we consider the disciples during that period of training and tutelage in which Jesus is bringing them along and understanding the mysteries of the kingdom of God and preparing them for public ministry, one of the things that we see so clearly is the weaknesses of the disciples. Um, We see in ourselves the disciples. You might, uh, like me, be one of those very rash and zealous people that find great affinity with Simon Peter. Every time I read about Simon Peter, I think, that is me. I'm in trouble. Slow down. (laughs) And as we see the weaknesses of the disciples, there are several peculiar weaknesses that rise to the forefront that surface repeatedly in the gospel records. And one of the biggest of those weaknesses is that they are constantly seeking self-aggrandizement. They are constantly seeking to assert themselves above the other disciples and above other professors of faith in Jesus Christ. And they are even, as is the case with James and John, when they send their mother to Jesus, seeking to use Jesus to get ahead. They are orthodox in what they think and believe. They are zealous for the advancement of the kingdom of God. But they silently slip into self-aggrandizing mode All along the way, Jesus has just told them about his death and resurrection in verses 30 through 32 in this chapter. He has just told them that the essence of the kingdom of God is his atoning death and his resurrection. He has just told them that all the mysteries of the ages center on what he is going to do in his death and his resurrection. And no sooner has he done that, that the disciples are there arguing about who is the greatest. You see this repeatedly when you look at the juxtaposition of how uh, the, the, the weaknesses and the frailties of the disciples, their own sinful foolishness, rise to the surface. It is almost always juxtaposed with something Jesus is revealing about his own glory, person, and work. And you'll notice that Jesus loves to uncover the sin of his disciples. He loves to make it clear to them. You, you often get a sense that The disciples, as is true for all of us, are some of the least self-aware people you could ever meet. They have been with Jesus. They have been with the incarnate God, and they are arguing about who is the greatest. They are in the presence of the incarnate Son of God, arguing about which of them will be deemed the greatest who has ever lived. And as Mark notes here and in other places in the Gospels, how these arguments arise and how Jesus loves to uncover them, he, he teaches us several things. He teaches us first that the, the weakness that the disciples exhibit is a weakness in our own hearts, and it's a weakness about how we view ourselves and our positions, and it is a weakness about how we view ourselves and our accomplishments. You'll note that as the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, that they, they silently and, and subtly are met by Jesus. They are confronted by Jesus. They are taught by Jesus as he takes this little child and puts him in the midst of them. They are taught by Jesus that whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. You would think that this would solve the problem. You would think that Jesus, illustrating for his disciples what true greatness in the kingdom looks like, you would think that him illustrating what the essence of the kingdom of God is in the life of disciples would have cured what was going on in the disciples' hearts. But notice that no sooner has Jesus done that than in verse 38, John says to him, 
Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, I have always been astonished when I've read these accounts because you would think that if Jesus met you today and he, in perfect wisdom, corrected the sin that lies so deeply into our hearts that we would be humbled to the dust, that we would fall down before him, that we would say, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. But Jesus has corrected the disciples by setting this child before them illustratively and saying, look, this is what greatness is. And no sooner has he done that, that John raises an objection. John says, Lord, we have seen people casting out demons in your name, and they do not follow with us, so we have rebuked them. Um, John is so fixated on the position that he has. He is so enamored with his own sense of of, uh, aggrandizement as a special disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the astonishing things, and I think one of the reasons Mark and the other gospel writers note John specifically in this account is because John would become the disciple who self-identified as the one whom Jesus loved. If there is one disciple I feel like I am not so often, it is the Apostle John. He is the gentle disciple that Jesus loved, who lays his head on Jesus' chest, who reclines on the Savior, who at the end of his life gives that repeated gentle call, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. I, I often have people in our congregation tell me that they're troubled by 1 John. And I don't think that it's so much that they're troubled by the cyclical kind of enigmatic way in which 1 John is written. I think they're troubled by it because John is calling the people of God to radical love for one another. And we know that we don't love one another as we ought to love one another. He's calling us to radical humiliation and humility and meekness and gentleness. He is essentially expositing everything Jesus taught in John 17. But John had to learn that personally. John had a a sense that he was in a greater position than others. And so when he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following with us. John is zealous about his own little group of apostolic disciples who were privileged to be with Jesus. He felt like we and we alone have the corner on gospel ministry. Now, we don't know who these people were that John was rebuking. We don't know um, what interaction they had had with Jesus personally. John Calvin, as he reflected on this passage, says in all likelihood they were not commissioned by Christ at any point. There was no, there was no sense in which we ought to take away from this passage that Jesus is saying that they are every bit as a legitimate apostles or ministers as those that Jesus had chosen. Jesus doesn't say that that their ministry is just as legitimate as anyone else's ministry. But what Jesus tells John, as he sees that self-aggrandizement rising to the surface, what Jesus tells him is that no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be afterwards able to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now, It's almost the inverse, isn't it, of what Jesus says elsewhere. He who is not for us is against us. He who does not gather with us scatters. But here, Jesus says, he who is not against us 
is for us. Jesus is teaching John that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than what John thinks in his own sense of position and authority and ministry. I think that we struggle. We struggle with this. Um, In seminary, we would often have debates um, about denominations and where we could serve and who we could serve with. And maybe we still have those debates. And I remember on one occasion having a debate with a brother who, who, in my opinion, was being extremely schismatic towards other believers in the way that he spoke of their ministries as illegitimate. And, and I quoted this verse, and, and he said to me, that's not what that means. And Well, I haven't told you what it means. <laughs> I just quoted the verse. It means something. <laughs> so, so we've got to come to terms with the fact that Jesus means something when he says this. He may not say we should all be denominated together. He's not saying we shouldn't care about doctrinal distinctions. He's not saying we shouldn't fight for purity and truth. But what he is saying is that his kingdom is so much bigger than our own sense of position in wherever we are serving and with whomever we are serving because we love to turn inward and we love to become as exclusive as possible, even when we have many around us who are preaching the same Christ, the same gospel, are laboring for the same kingdom. You know, the Apostle Paul in that great statement in Philippians 1 that you always, you're left wondering how in the world could the Apostle who cares so deeply about sound doctrine, who, who would give his life for sound doctrine, could say that, that even if men are preaching Christ with wrong motives, trying to heap scorn and shame on me, trying to deride me by preaching the gospel, that's what drove them. I don't care, just as long as Christ is preached. Just as long as Christ is preached. I want to read to you what Calvin says on... Jesus' response and, and the meaning of it, he says, If the disciples had not been more devoted to their own glory than anxious and desirous to promote the glory of their master, they would not have been offended when they saw the glory heightened and enlarged in another direction. And yet Christ declares that we ought to reckon as friends those who are not open enemies. Now, I want to say this this morning because we in 2016 are more sophisticated than any other people probably in human history. We can, we can, in that we are all lawyers. We are all self-study lawyers. And we can, in the most sophisticated and nuanced ways, treat brothers as enemies while saying, no, 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 we think they're brothers. We are extremely sophisticated, especially in a society that teaches us to lie, not to tell people the truth in love, not to speak the truth in love, not to be forthright and honest in a society that, that wants to cloak everything under falsehood and under um, false notions of affection and acceptance. And I think the word here is strong. I think what Jesus is saying is a strong word for us, that we ought not, Calvin says, treat those as enemies who we ought to reckon as friends for the sake of the kingdom of God in the work of Jesus. You know, when you think about John Calvin, John Calvin, at least in my own thinking, kind of stood as this figure of purity and, um, and rigidity. I don't know if you ever kind of had that view of Calvin. I've been reading through Calvin's sermons. I've read through most of his sermons on Genesis and Ephesians this past year. And 
and have a radically different view of John Calvin than I've ever had before. My appreciation for him has gone through the roof. By the way, if you ever want that to happen, read Calvin's sermons. They are absolutely amazing. Um, not as Christocentric as they should be, in my humble but accurate opinion. But, <laughs> but, but absolutely amazing. And one of the things you see about Calvin is Calvin is self-deprecating. Calvin, as great as he is and as zealous as he was, is, is, is a man that never seeks to promote himself or his own ministry in any kind of um, unhelpful or sinful or self-aggrandizing way. Never. Sometimes scholars will say, well, we don't know much about his conversion because Calvin didn't talk about his conversion. Calvin didn't talk about himself. Almost ever. This is the genius, by the way. I know there's debate here. This is the genius of Calvin's use of we in his preaching, especially when preaching depravity. Calvin, you get a sense, never wants to set himself in any place or position in which he would be seen as separate from the rest of fallen humanity, even as a believer, especially as a believer. And uh, I don't know if you've read through uh, Scott Manich's book, Calvin's Company of Pastors, but you learn some very fascinating things as you do about Geneva and the development of Geneva and and this idea that perhaps uh, Geneva was this almost perfectly pure ecclesiastical setting in which Calvin was banishing anyone who, who differed with him in the least. Sometimes you get that opinion of Calvin because of the Servetus issues and all the other issues. You get this idea that Calvin was an absolute purist who was just banishing anyone from Geneva. Calvin was banished from Geneva. And uh, one of the interesting things in Calvin's company of pastors, and I want to read a couple to you, is that Calvin had to minister side by side with men that he didn't like. When they they asked me to, uh, when they were, uh, the presbytery was examining me to see if I'd, I'd be a good fit for the church plan in Richmond Hill, uh, the question they kept asking is, can you gather people? And at not having ever planted a church, I said, I, I don't know. I, maybe. And uh, they, they would say to me, well, but can you gather people? And, and uh, Roland Barnes in Statesboro finally said, do you repulse people or do you attract people? I said, I do both. <laughs> I tend, it, it may not be an equal balance, but I tend to do a little bit of both. Um, there are plenty of people that do not like me. And there are plenty, plenty of people I do not like. And yet I am called to love the people of God. I am called to love difficult congregants. I am called to love ministers who don't care about the doctrine that I care about in my own denomination. I am called to love a lot of people that I do not like. And Calvin had to. Listen to this quote. Calvin, as he comes back to Geneva, that, that time when he returns in In the early 1540s, he's writing about the ministers in the city and what he's left to work with, those men that he has to work with. And he says, our other colleagues are more a hindrance than a help to us. They are proud and self-conceited, have no zeal and less learning. But what is worse than all, I cannot trust them, even though I very much wish I could. 
I found that to be fascinating. Now, what Calvin does over the next um, uh, two decades and then what continues for seven decades, what Manich calls uh, Calvin's company of pastors, is that Calvin continues to labor to train men and to bring men in and to unify men. And those men that, that he didn't trust, those men that were problems, the colleagues that he had, the other ministers he had, um, some of them died. Some of them were out of ministry within three years. Some of them, we're told, were transferred to country parishes. Always a good idea. If you don't like somebody, just send them to Vidalia, Georgia. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But as Calvin labored, and he labored patiently, and he understood that the kingdom of God was bigger than him and his own vision and his own ministry, and he understood that he had to work with people that God had put in his way, and as he made and developed friendships with Veret and Farrell, and then all the men that they brought into Geneva, change began to happen. And I think... The change happened because while Calvin didn't like or trust the ministers that he had to labor with in the city in those early years, he labored by them patiently and perseveringly. He labored to bring change in, in wise and careful ways. He was diligent and forthright about his, his agendas. He wasn't subversive in what he did. And Manich makes the point, and I want to read this to you, he makes the point that during seven decades following the, the 1536 revolution, one can discern four periods or generations of pastoral leadership in Geneva. A period of disruption, that's when Calvin's dealing with all these men he doesn't trust. Manich calls it a period of disruption. From 1536 to 1544, a period of construction from 1545 to 1559, a period of consolidation from 1560 to the mid-1590s, and a period of indigenation and professionalization after 1594. Now, the effects of Calvin's ministry are being felt today, are continued to be felt long after Calvin. Knox, you know, would sit under Calvin's preaching of Ephesians. He would go back to Scotland. Tardin, the great uh, systematician, learned at the feet of Calvin. Princeton Seminary was built on the works of Turretin. You see how Calvin's view of even bearing with those that he didn't like, he didn't trust, he didn't think had much quality about them, but for the sake of the kingdom of God, while he pressed on to bring reform, I think is a model of what Jesus is teaching here. That if men are not against us, no matter how much we may not like them, no matter how much they may seem lazy, by the way, lazy ministry, is the worst. We need diligent, zealous, thoughtful, knowledgeable, prayerful, biblically saturated, theologically deep ministers of the gospel who are going to pour their lives out for the sake of the ministry. But I think as we bear with those around us who, who don't seem to be in our tribe or our camp or, or with us or they haven't been in our particular little group and we realize that the kingdom is bigger and that the glory of Christ is more important and we labor diligently and we continue to train men and we continue to link arms and we continue to pray with and for each other, we see the effects, we see the good effects pouring out. Now, I, I also wonder if John is not saying what he's saying to Jesus out of a sense of envy. Because it was just before this account that 
the apostles remember that inner band, uh, Peter, James, and John, had been taken up by Jesus to the mountain where he was transfigured. And, and uh, the other disciples, remember, were down at the foot of the mountain. And when Jesus and the disciples came down, um, they, they, they were met, Lord, we couldn't cast out this demon. Now, here, John is complaining that here are people over here who are casting out demons in the name of Christ. And John and the other disciples, he says, we have forbidden them. You almost get a sense that what John might have been dealing with inwardly was not just a sense of self-aggrandizement in the position that he had, but that there was a sense in which the accomplishments that John thought he ought to hold were what kept him at bay from others and what led him to ostracize others. I am convinced that territorialism in ministry is one of the greatest evils that has stunted the growth of the kingdom of God in the Reformed Church. I'm not talking about a a naive ecumenism. I'm not saying we shouldn't care what people believe. I am Reformed, Presbyterian, Household Baptist, (laughs) not Pado-Baptist, um, and yet, you've invited me here. Well, Nick has. <laughs> <laughs> and this is good, and it's beautiful. And it's right that we seek to care deeply for other ministers who are like-minded, who are not exactly where we are. We, we are right to care about those that threaten the gospel. And we are right to warn the sheep about them. But one of the things that I am constantly having to push against in ministry, and I imagine it's true for you because we have the same hearts and the same natures, is that jealousy and envy creeps up so quick. I mean, I've had huge privileges. I got a 1.9 GPA in high school. I have no college degree, and I went to Greenville Seminary. But God has granted me huge privileges in ministry. But as soon as the guy next to me advances and gets an opportunity I don't get, I see that ugly pride welling up in my heart. And what most of us tend to do then is say, well, we'll just drop back, we'll focus on our own church, we'll we'll have sort of a faux relationship with other believers, we won't ever really do anything about praying for their success or the advancement of the kingdom through their ministries, we won't labor to do things together purposefully and, and really for the good of each other, we won't promote, I mean this happens in our own denomination, but I will sit back and I will just work on my own kingdom building and my own territory. Lord, they were casting out demons, the disciples couldn't do it, now... John is upset. Now, what is the solution? What is the remedy when we not only start to be puffed up in our own sense of position in ministry and those with whom we have been called to minister, but when we're looking at accomplishments and and we're puffed up in our own sense of ability and accomplishment? Notice what Jesus does. He says... In verse 41, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. For years I didn't understand why Jesus said that immediately after correcting the disciples not to refuse others and reject others who are bringing glory to his name. But I get it now. What Jesus is saying is true achievement in the kingdom of God, what what 
brings true greatness in the kingdom of God, just like he said with the little child, is that whoever gives one of these little ones, whoever gives one of my beloved disciples a cup of water in my name, even just a cup of water, loves them, cares for them. Notice what Jesus says, will by no means lose his reward. What Jesus is doing is uncovering in John's heart that John is all about reward, all about personal gain. And what lay at the bottom of everything John is saying and doing is a desire for personal promotion and gain. This is why John and James sent their mother to Jesus to say, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do? That I sit on your right and your left and your glory. Forget the other disciples. Notice how deeply entrenched James and John would forget Peter. (laughs) They They would supplant all the other disciples just to be able to get ahead. And Jesus says true greatness is when somebody just gives you a cup of water. You know, we often think the great people of the earth are the Spurgeons and the Edwards and the Calvins and the Augustines and, and all the great preachers and theologians. We have a tendency, I have a tendency to do that. We think these are the great ones of the earth. But there are always those little godly elderly widows who are caring for people, who are writing notes to believers to encourage them, who are praying. Greatest man I ever knew. I'll leave you with this thought because I think it's appropriate. I was blessed to have grown up in a Christian home Um, around some of the old Westminster Seminary Philadelphia faculty, the original faculty. Um, We would would vacation with Dr. Van Til when I was a little boy. And and when you think of the old Westminster faculty, and it was a a school that was unsurpassed in greatness over the last hundred years, um, you tend to think of the John Murrays, the E.J. Youngs, the Machins, the Van Tills, the Clownies. You tend to think of the well-known, academic um, gifts that God gave to his church. But there was a man at Westminster Seminary that you may not have ever heard of. His name was John Skilton. John was... Um, John was professor of New Testament and Greek uh, after Machin... Uh, replaced Stonehouse uh, for 43 years at Westminster Seminary. Um, They say that John had uh, the entire Greek New Testament memorized and that he and Dr. Murray um, had a contest to see who could memorize all the textual variants, like every, and that John did. If anyone here went to Westminster and had John at all, they say that John would be teaching and ask a student to read uh, Philippians 3, 10 and following in, in Greek, and this, he'd go walk over by a window and the student be reading, and John would be correcting his reading without looking at his New Testament. Um, my memories of John were him down in his basement at what later became known as the Skilton House, and um, he would be slumped over. I remember one time we went to visit John, and he was slumped over his desk asleep, on a stack of papers. He, he wrote a doctoral dissertation on English translations of the New Testament from 1880 to 1901 for the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League School, left it on a bus, John didn't drive a car, left it on a bus and couldn't ever recover it and reconstructed it from memory. Um, John edited the Westminster Theological Journal for a number of years. John 
Skilton also uh, edited a series of books called The New Testament Student. Um, uh, he published a number of Machen's works that were, um, that were never published previously, unpublished works. Um, he and Dr. Van Til were best friends after uh, Rita Van Til died. And um, my earliest memories as a boy were not of just those things, but when John was in his 60s, he told the student body at Westminster Seminary, I'm about to retire. And they said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, my idea of retirement is probably a little bit different than yours. And John started what became known as the Skilton House. And Skilton House was um, on Alney Ave in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia. And, um, and we would go to the Skilton House as a boy, and John would have in that home the most diverse group of people from the Vietnamese neighborhood. I remember there were people that were AIDS victims in that home. There were missionaries from all over the world. It was actually quite a dangerous area. One missionary was shot to death outside coming to visit John. John, in his 80s, would be found sleeping on the floor and would give just about anybody else his bed. And, and when I went back to Philadelphia in 2007 and began um, kind of talking to people about John and reminiscing about him, I, I would hear this refrain over and over and over again. He was the most loving man I ever knew. That was not said of Dr. Van Til. It was not said of Dr. Murray. It was not said of Machen. It was not said of Stonehouse. It was not said of E.J. Young or of Clowney. It was said of John Skilton. And we may not have his books filling our libraries, but the legacy that he has left is one that has learned what Jesus is teaching in Mark 9. Now my hope, because I lack so much of that, my hope is that this will stir us up as we consider all that Jesus has done for us, all the ways that he has served us in pouring his life out unto death, all the ways that he has taken all of our greed and selfishness and territorialism and pride and self-aggrandizement on himself at the cross, that we would learn to grow in humility and meekness and love and a desire to welcome, to receive, to bear along with those who are proclaiming the same Christ the same gospel, who are laboring for the same purposes, who are wanting to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge how much of the same spirit that the disciples had, we have in us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would forgive us for how quickly our pride wells up, how quickly we seek to ostracize and to rebuke those who we deem not to be with us. We pray that you would give us wisdom to know to parse between uh, when we need to take a stand for doctrinal matters and when we need to be grateful for those who are proclaiming the same gospel and pray for them and long to have fellowship with them. And we pray that you would teach us that we belong to the same body and that there is one church and that there's one Savior and one King and Lord of the church. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless these men and their ministries, that they would thrive, that you would give them power, that you would give them power in teaching and preaching, that you would give them power in loving and caring for others around them and those who are ministering side by side with them. We pray, our God, that you would use us. We are weak and sinful and frail and needy. And so have mercy on us, and we pray that you would use us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.